0: And good morning, listeners. We are back with another Riddles in the Dark podcast. We apologize for the uh, approximately twenty-four hour delay, but Professor Olson obviously takes his um, uh, his university duties very seriously and had to wrap up a grading for the spring semester. So That's let, right. Yeah, we let you get that out of the way before we distracted you with um, uh, speculation about the Hobbit. Yeah, but, so I
1: sitting there grading papers, but unfortunately did not happen to jot down in any one of them the line of a new novel. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, we were finally, no, no more of that nonsense, we're done grading, now we're getting down to the real important stuff. What's going to happen in The Hobbit? So let's get started. Um, Welcome to another Riddles in the Dark podcast. I'm your co-host Dave Kale and with me as always is the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. So uh, I believe you had a topic you wanted to, a, uh, a teachable moment you wanted to start with.
1: Yes, one kind of uh, uh, irrelevant but sort of nagging thing that has come up a couple of times. There have been several people who have uh, uh, posted on my Tolkien Professor Facebook page or sent me an email about this, and I keep meaning to get around to it and I keep forgetting. So I'm going to finally get around to it today. And that is people who have been asking about the pronunciation of the dwarves' names Um and basically, you know, uh, that is, many people have noticed, for instance, how I keep saying Thrain, uh, as the father of Thorin, uh, you know, Thror, Thrain, and, uh, and, um, and Thorin, of course. Um, and there, the reason that I do this, I think that it, it is fairly clear, um, that it's supposed to be two syllables. Um, so that's, and 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 I would emphasize that my authority for this is not any kind of expertise in Icelandic. Um, of course, the the names of the dwarves all come from uh, from the poetic Edda. So, uh, but it's not it's not in that. I actually uh, I, I have no expertise in Old Norse, but. What I do have is Tolkien's own uh, notations on this, which you can see if you go to Appendix A in The Return of the King and look in particular at the genealogy there, you find that he consistently puts accent marks over the A's and O's in the dwarfs name. I say consistently. Actually it's not quite consistent. Um, but but anyway you can see that he puts those accent marks there. And Tolkien uses those accent marks to indicate when things are supposed to be uh different syllables like that. So he he those are pronunciation guides primarily. Um, so when you have somebody whose name is D A I N with an accent over the A, he's doing that to indicate that you're supposed to pronounce that as two syllables. It's not just Dane or Dine. Um, it's two syllables. It's day in. Um, and similarly, G.L.O.I.N. is not gloin. It's glowing. Um, and so that's uh that's that's the, the primary thing you can also see when Tolkien puts puts an umlaut, puts the two dots above a terminal E. Again, he's doing that in order to 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 give you a cue for pronunciation. So um, when you have an E at the end, which is supposed to be pronounced, which is not a silent E, he will tend to put those, those two dots there to indicate this gets a syllable. It's not silent. So anyway, so that's the main thing. It's clear that he he meant those to be two syllable words. So it's not thrain and dain or dine and thrain. It's thrain and dain. Um so so that's the simplest thing. The other uh sort of more indirect but kind of cuter piece of evidence <laughs> that we have for this. Um uh at I was not present at this event, but at at a uh, a big Tolkien society conference several years ago, uh, Michael, I believe it was Michael Tolkien, uh, Michael Tolkien attended the event and gave a talk in which he was recalling um, J.R.R. Tolkien's readings of of the Hobbit to them and um, the sort of games and jokes that they used to make. And he talked about this sort of fake story that they had made up, which they had made up manifestly an imitation of the Hobbit as a kind of like, you know, in-house parody of the Hobbit and the names that they, um, the fake names that they made up for the dwarves and things were all things which were clearly designed to rhyme with the real dwarf names and, but they were real words like throw in. T-H-R-O-W hyphen in, uh, and throw in and stay in and things like that. So again, it, by itself, that sort of shows clearly how they were pronouncing them among themselves. If, if they thought, uh, if they thought the phrase throw in was sort of a, a silly, um, imitation of the name glow in, it shows you how they were pronouncing glow in, doesn't it? Um, so anyway, so th- that's, that's, that's the other sort of anecdotal evidence, uh, for how how, uh, how those things, how those names would have been pronounced. So anyway, so that's how I always do, that's how I always do the dwarf names. It is, uh, it's, it's on a fairly simple basis. And sometimes I slip up. I mean, I am inconsistent in my own pronunciation, especially I find Thrayan harder, uh, to be consistent about. And I sometimes slip into Thrine, which is how I used to pronounce it when I was little. Uh, but anyway. So that's,
0: that's sort of an unnatural sound for, uh. It it is. native born americans
1: it's a little it is a little bit more awkward um glowing is easy enough i think uh but um but but yeah some of the other ones are a little bit more awkward and dying too dan see i just did it right now while talking about the pronunciation uh dan is really also sometimes a little bit counterintuitive, too, but anyway, I just wanted to explain that's that is my answer to the dwarf name pronunciation question, which I know has been bothering several people
0: well thank you for thank you for that clarification that helps me since i I have about eight different ways that I pronounce dragon's <laughs> name yes <laughs> and I never do it the same way twice.
1: Well see, that's actually a fine approach because then you know that you are you'll probably be right a certain percentage of the time. <laughs>
0: that's right.
1: Whereas if you're consistently wrong, then you're wrong a hundred percent of the time. That's a
0: that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> I'm spreading out I'm 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 doing a variety of different bets.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um let's do a little bit of listener feedback from the MythGuard website. Um <clears throat> let's see. So um uh, uh, one thing that uh, Faerun mentioned on our uh, uh, episode 6 and 7 post regarding the the split and the um, the White Council storyline is uh, uh, he had an interesting notion of how Sauron might be involved in the Battle of Five Armies, which I know in general people are pretty nervous about and don't really <laughs> – are, are dearly hoping that he doesn't show up in a giant suit of armor and start um, swinging his mace and making right, hundreds of people right. fly around like he did yeah. at the uh, – <laughs> um right. in at the beginning of the fellowship of the ring but um <clears throat> he mentions this idea that um well for one thing he says he thinks it's interesting uh, or he thinks um that uh maybe Maybe Peter Jackson will tweak the storyline a little bit, make it to where um, um, the necromancer is fully prepared for the White Council's assault, but it's the destruction of Smog that causes him to flee because that sort of changes the balance of power in the north and changes his calculations, and that's mm-hmm. why he'll leave um, um, uh, Dol Goldor. So that that could maybe mean pushing the Dol Goldor battle later into the timeline. Um, and he also points out that maybe, um, maybe when Sauron shows up at the Battle of Five Armies, he's not going to be there fighting physically, but rather he'll be there sort of as a presence. So he's, uh, Faerun mentions, um, Gandalf thinks Sauron may have won the battle after all, um, or sort of Gandalf after when, 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 um, uh, the Necromancer flees, Gandalf's like, oh, um, I think we didn't actually win that, guys. I'd better get over to Lonely Mountain. And what he finds is Sauron's, Sauron's there, but sort of is kind of his, in his weakened spirit, uh, mode. And okay. he's not actually fighting, but maybe he's, um, um, sort of influencing people, causing them to behave badly, particularly if the dwarf ring is playing a role. Uh, maybe he's whispering that... in people's ears and making right. them distrust each other and stuff like that.
1: It's, it's, it's a really interesting possibility. I mean, here, here's the, to me, the bigger question that lies behind that possibility. And that is, how are they going to depict? Are they going to try to depict? Uh, like a minor league Sauron. I mean, how, because of course, one of the whole reasons for making Sauron a flaming eyeball in the first place is how do you represent on film the idea that Sauron is, you know, sort of this spiritual presence, which, you know, has a wide radius of influence. Um, I mean, it's hard to show that kind of completely invisible spiritual influence over people i mean that's also why they you know we ended up with the elaborate exorcism scene with theoden for the same reason because it's really hard to depict the kind of control that saruman had via wormtongue over theoden um you know without giving some kind of a visual representation and the exorcism was clearly a way to render that visual and therefore dramatic on screen um Uh, so uh, basically, what what are they gonna make? What are they gonna make Sauron look like? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that he's not gonna be in the same outfit, right? Such that anybody who was there at the Battle of the Last Alliance or has heard about it would be like, "It's Sauron! I recognize the spooky helmet!" Right? I mean, like, so obviously he's he, you know, he needn't look exactly the same, but um. But how, how is he gonna look? Is he going to look human? Are we actually gonna see him? Um uh, is he going to be cloaked or something? Are we gonna get like a kind of like, you know, emperor, uh, Palpatine thing going on with him? Uh, like, uh, exactly how are they gonna do that? And if they do do that, how would they do that kind of, that kind of influence? Because again, that's notoriously difficult to do on screen. I mean, I, I genuinely, I mean, here I am kind of, uh, Speaking as I am wont to do, uh, with a certain amount of flippancy about the way that they represented these things on film, but it's a genuine challenge. I don't know how I would do it if I were making a film, um, to depict that the kinds, the kinds of influence, the way that, the way that, that, that magic and the exertion of power over others, especially dominion, um, is actually described in Tolkien's world. It's really hard to do. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, I think, um, so, do we do we get any hints about his appearance here? Because
0: what we know for sure is that post um, the downfall of Numenor, he cannot take on a, a fair pleasing shape. So, I'm yeah. guessing we're not going to see Benedict Cumberbatch uh, without much makeup on. He's he's far too uh, pleasing a sight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> so that's out. <laughs> but also, you know, my understanding is that after the the battle of uh, after the after he's struck down by Isildur, um, he never really even takes on a sort of concrete physical humanoid shape from then on. He's mostly dark spirit. And then by the time he gets back to Mordor, he's now a giant flaming eyeball, or rather, <laughs> uh, uh, liter- whether literally or figuratively, a giant flaming eyeball. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's it is very unclear. Um uh it is very unclear what Sauron looks like if you were to actually to go before him before him in the Barad-dûr. What what does he look like? I think he does have some kind of physical uh presence. Um and actually the closest we get to this is Pippin's conversation with him in the in the Palantir. Um and uh and the sense that Pippin gives is that it's actually a person that he's looking at. Um, you know, then he looked at me, he says. Um, you know, uh, so, I, it's, it does seem that he has some kind of physical form. Um, but we never see it. I mean, other than that brief near encounter in the Palantir, that second hand encounter that we get in the Palantir, um, just Pippin's description. We don't really know, um, what, what he looks like. But yes, he, he's not able to put on a fair appearance to deceive people anymore. Um, <clears throat> but presumably he can put on a kind of, uh, you know, tyrant's appearance, um, and not just a flaming eyeball appearance. Um, and I'm, I'm joking about this, but of course I do want to emphasize he never appears as a flaming eyeball, uh, in, uh, in, in the books. But anyhow, um, he, yeah, so, I mean, uh, th- this is even unclear, you know, for instance, in the passages which describe Gandalf going, I mean, when, of course, Gandalf, when he goes to Dalguldur, um, in the books, or when we hear about this, we don't ever get a full narration of Gandalf's trip into Dalguldur, of course, but one of the things that he's doing is confirming who is this necromancer guy. Uh, you know, is it, and their main question seems to be, is it Sauron taking shape again, or is this one of the, Ring is it because it could be just like the Witch King. You know, the Witch King left Angmar and hasn't been really, you know, definitively heard from since. Um, and since he's not locked up in a tomb, he could be the one. He could be the Necromancer. Um, and so somehow Gandalf goes in and confirms that it's Sauron, so that when he comes back, he's able to say, yeah, I've, I've like 100% certain ID'd the dude. It's Sauron. Um, but see the thing is is that it's very uncertain exactly what that I mean like does he identify him by sight i mean does he actually get to like Sauron's you know the necromancer's i don't know what, what i mean would he have a throne room his hall or whatever i don't know and you know see him and i mean would would he have to see him could he just get close enough to sort of feel his presence in some sense um i don't know but i mean all that we do know is that gandalf is able to confirm positively it's definitely sauron after he goes to dol guldor um so yeah i mean i think one of the things that i would emphasize here is that this is wide open i mean for peter jackson this is this whole that whole area is wide open sauron's depiction his physical depiction here is wide open um because we don't know it could well be um i could see Sauron just being a literally shadowy figure, um, maybe cloaked like a ring wraith uh, maybe uh, you know maybe just in maybe just a voice in the in you know in in the darkness i I could see anything like that uh, anything like that would fit i think perfectly fine um he could even have a physical form and be wearing a mask or a different helmet <laughs> or something like that um, i don 't know i don 't know but um uh, but yeah, yeah. it, it it is very interesting, and this seems kind of like a digression, I think, but it does bear directly on this—that is, on this this question that 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 uh, that our listener was raising, because if he's going to appear either in the Battle of Dol Guldur or appear at the Battle of Five Armies directly or indirectly. How's that gonna go? Now you think though, here's my thought about the Battle of Five Armies question though, the specific issue with the Battle of Five Armies, is that basically, Smog's already dead. I mean, Smog was what he was invested in. And obviously he would rather have the goblins win the Battle of Five Armies, you know, that would be in his interest to stamp out the dwarves. Uh, I mean, if he could stamp out the dwarves, humans, and elves up in that region in one big battle, that would be pretty awesome. So you could see how he would, in fact, have, have a stake in the Battle of Five Armies e- even after Smaug is dead. But to some extent, the damage is done um, when Smaug is dead. So uh, if Sauron were to have a, like, oh, crap, I'd better help out up north moment, you'd think it would be prior to this. Um, but I don't know. I mean I guess you could see like he hears about Smag- Smaug's death and it's like, oh crap, the whole north is falling. Uh you know, is like, uh, you know, l- l- let's see if anything can be salvaged out of that situation. But th- that strikes me as a little anticlimactic, I have to say, um, for uh for Sauron in the South. Um having him do a kind of like I don't know, rear guard action or sort of desperate attempt to salvage operations. Um up north, when Smaug is already dead, I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not enormously convinced by that.
0: Yeah, they would. They would have to do that very carefully, so it didn't seem seem nonsensical and forced. You know, oh, well, it's, so so it didn't look like they were just trying to cram every major character into every battle and every scene. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, ex- I think. I think. I think that people are people are are prepared to accept the. Um, the the this uh, I guess apocryphal material in the film, mm-hmm. and even and even prepared to accept a little bit of innovation and some changes and stuff, um uh and 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 I think we all sort of buy the notion that um that the the necromancer is connected to smog you know Tolkien talked about this in some of his some of his extra material but it's not that strong of a connection, you know, at least at least right. Tolkien didn't set it up that way, he set it up sort of very tenuously or, or sort of a the promise, you know, he sort of set up the possibility of a connection had events not unfolded the way they did. Right. So right. I think they need to be very careful not to overdo it.
1: Right. Exactly. Because, you know, to some extent, if they do overdo that, then we could be getting a sort of second hand version of the horrible image you made last time of the witch king riding the riding smaug that is <laughs> smaug you know smaug is a free agent you know yes. i mean yes sauron could work with him um, and the two of them you know, could certainly benefit and maybe Sauron could just pull rank and say, you're working for me now, buddy. But I mean, that's not a, that's, that's not guaranteed. That's not absolute. Um, any more than the Balrog would be. I mean, you know, the, the Balrog and Smaug, either one of them could basically say, you know, Forget you, Sauron, I'm setting up on my own. You're, you're not the boss of me because he wasn't the boss of them. Right. Um, you know, so it, it's, it, that's, that's kind of unclear. And basically I would certainly, I think it's going to, it's going to make the reason I find, of course, the idea of a, of a ring flying on Smaug so horrifying is that it completely downgrades Smaug. Smaug, um, Smaug is then just a, a minor accessory of the villain, rather than being really the central force that, uh, that, I, that I think he, he, he really should be. And, and I would hate to see him pushed into the margins like that, even, you know, sort of halfway, um, which I think it would be, if there were any sense that Smaug were, you know, reporting to Sauron in any sense, if he's just an uh, agent.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I exactly. personally felt that, I felt the same way about Saruman. I felt he was completely, de- I, I did not like Saruman as Sauron's, um, uh, bewitched stooge. Um, yes. I always preferred the book's take where, where it's somebody sort of playing both sides.
1: Yes, exactly. That, that he is in rivalry of Mordor and not yet in its service. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I, I agree that, the the thing which I think the one moment which undermines Saruman more than any other in the films is the build me an army worthy of Mordor. Uh, like, you know, and, and so that basically he can, everything. couldn't come
0: up with that idea
1: on his own. Right, exactly. Oh, yeah, oh, obviously an army. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I got a great idea. But, I mean, yeah, it's just, it, uh, it's the idea that he's just like saluting to Sauron and saying, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, um, does really change things. And I would hate to see Smaug doing that. Um, as well, so so no, I mean it would be um, the whole idea of a relationship. I mean, it certainly is a logical relationship, and and there doesn't seem much reason to think that Smaug and S- and Sauron wouldn't work together, at least in the short term, because you know obviously they would both benefit. Um, in particular, the, the, the of course, because you remember the, the particular thing that Gandalf said he would have been afraid of is that while Sauron was occupying people with his armies. Uh, in the south, that Smaug could have been sent around to the north and could have attacked Rivendell. Um, so that, you know, that Rivendell could have been destroyed by Smaug from behind Mm -hmm. while, uh, while Sauron was occupying everybody else down in the south and, you know, neither Gandalf nor Galadriel nor anybody else could have come to Elrond's assistance.
0: And that, and that even, even if they had destroyed, uh, the ring, defeated Sauron, that, um, You know, they would have returned to the north to find the whole thing just charred remains.
1: Right, right, exactly. Um, So, so yeah. I mean, would Smaug have agreed to do that? I mean, I think Gandalf is quite right to fear that. Obviously, I mean, that seems that seems like a perfectly sensible thing because, of course, Smaug would have a lot to benefit. I mean, would would he like to? There's, there's. Rivendell is where most of the high elves remaining in Middle Earth are, which means like most of the cool swag remaining in Middle Earth from the First Age is there. You know, mm. so I just think how he could increase his horde um, if uh, if he were to take if he were to take Rivendell. So so would he want to do that? Oh yeah, sure he would want to do that, and it would benefit Sauron. Um, so 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 yeah. But but again, to, to imagine to have the two of them communicating and coordinating um, during the films, I think would be bad because Mm -hmm. it, it, Basically, it would demote one of them or the other. Um, if we see Smaug taking orders, that reduces him. If we see the two of them cooperating as equals, it reduces Sauron. I mean, it's then it's harder harder to take Sauron as seriously as the Dark Lord behind all of the evil. Um, if we see, you know, him and the dragon being like, "Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take this side, you take that side, let's go." Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 harder. But see, again, that's. I'm hoping that they don't. I really hope that they don't depict Sauron much at all. Um, I, you know that he, yeah. Again, I, 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 the fact that he's cast makes me nervous enough to start with. Um, I think it would be very easy for him to go in to get into like Lord Voldemort material.
0: Yeah, he just, he's on screen so much; he's totally diminished.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think they're exactly. better off.
0: I think they're better off not putting him on screen too much. And also, yeah, I, I prefer that they take they sort of. You know, do the same thing with smog and Sauron that they do in the book, which is just make it sort of a tantalizing hint of things that might have been, and don't try to actually do it too much. Right, right. This is one I of those mean... things that frequently ends up being far more, far less interesting in execution than it is in theory.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the less, cause, I mean, you can easily have people in the White Council talking about it, you know, yeah. to make sure that the audience is appropriately afraid, you know, to make sure that they are thinking, oh my goodness, like, it, what, imagine what could happen. This could be terrible. But we certainly don't need, you know, the other side of that table, you know, and to have, you know, like Sauron and, and, uh, and Smaug, like, on their cell phones or whatever to each other, you know, coordinating their own efforts. Um just the idea of of having these two threats. You know, we have we have you know the one part of the film which is building up the threat of Dol Guldur and the other part of the film which is getting closer and closer to the better known threat of Smaug. Um you know and then you just throw out there the possibility that they could work together um you know like what could happen if they actually combine forces and i think you know i really don't think you need to do more than that
0: yep i completely agree yeah. um we should probably move on to
1: a new topic. Yes, we should probably move on to our actual topic <laughs> yeah. today. Yeah. No, 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 But yeah. briefly, I do have one oh, other. Oh, oh,
0: we have another one. Okay, let one us continue of putting feedback. off our main topic. And we'll, and we'll see if we can actually <laughs> spend like two minutes on this. Okay, um, okay. Uh, Michael Lucero on um, our most recent episode commented, and he, by the way, Michael has an awesome Tumblr that is stoneofthehapless.tumblr.com. People should oh, check out. Oh, that is awesome. <clears throat> yeah, I thought you'd like that
1: uh he, super bonus points for the name of his Tumblr account that's right
0: he uh he's offended by the notion that men could seal the uh, nazgul in the tomb using magic
1: <sighs> well you know yeah <laughs> i mean i see that um uh yeah well not sure what to say about that i <laughs> mean than-
0: you feel the same way. Other but than I, yeah, seems I seems like it might be a necessary evil for the film. Yeah,
1: yeah, I feel yeah. I mean, I I I, I will say nothing other than I c- I can see how that would work on film. You know, I, I can see it functioning as a like, you know, the dark menace unleashed moment. I can see it as a. Um, to simplify things because, you know, as I've said before, one of the thing about Tolkien's actual situation that he described is it's so indefinite. I mean, are you going to ask, you're going to ask a film audience to basically accept they've been, what have they been doing for the last, you know, a couple thousand years? Uh, n- not much, you know, out, you know, hanging out, laying the foundations in some sense that we don't understand for Sauron's return. Um, You know, I mean, I get doing some like Sauron evangelism work over in the East among the Easterlings. You know, I mean, there's stuff that they could be doing, but, but again, it's so much simpler and it's so much straightforward to be able to show, um, to be able to show a film audience here are the tombs where they have been sealed, um, showing that there was a time in the past when the good guys won and when evil was locked away and now evil is being opened up again. I mean, it's, it's much more simplistic than the way that Tolkien describes it. But you know, in part for that reason, I can see it working well on film. So I mean, I'm not saying I would have done it this way. I totally sympathize with the idea. I mean, it, it, it the, the, the kind of magic involved, the, 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 I mean, everything about it is really a fairly significant departure from the story that Tolkien told and the, the, the world that he created as far as that stuff goes. So no arguments there. Um, but you know, when I think about it, I can see it functioning on film and I'm not shocked that they went in that direction if that is indeed what's happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Alright, so see, see how open-minded I am endeavoring to be as we approach the films, and I want to emphasize, this is the kind of open mind that I try to advocate to keep. Like, yes, it is a major departure, uh, yes, it misses the point of a bunch of different things in Tolkien's works, but, this is... Their story, they can do this if they want, and I can imagine it working well as a story. That's the, st- that's the stuff that bothers me more than anything else when they do stuff which undermines the story that even they are trying to tell. Like this is why the things I have the hardest time forgiving them for in the Lord of the Rings are things like making Treebeard an idiot. Uh, like that—that that really bothers me. You know, when Treebeard is like, "Oh, they're destroying my forest, and I had no idea." <laughs> I mean, like that—I—that I, I, that drives me b- b- bananas every time I see that part of the, of, of, of of the Two Towers. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, because like saying. that's just like incoherent and and frustrating. Uh, but you know, like other places where. Where they where they, you know, have made changes which you know which actually work internally. And again, here uh, the the elves showing up at Helm's Deep is like the classic example I would give. Um is it kind of silly? I mean, if you're thinking about Tolkien's story and stuff, is it kind of silly? Yeah, but you know, it works. In the film, it works fantastically. It's really cool, actually, in the movie. Um so, you know, it, it, does it like you know offend my purism, yes, it does but uh but I but 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 I can totally live with it in the film. it's fine um can I live with the Rohirrim fighting elephants? fighting elephants uh you know absolutely yeah, yeah, you know, can I live with Lego surfing? Uh, sure, no problems but uh but yeah, it's when their own story really doesn't undermined make it
0: by sense the things that, that they're doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what really I or or when they just do things which seem to me uh, uh you know from where I'm sitting to be totally unnecessary. But
0: anyway. Yep. Okay, well let's get on to the uh Okay. S- theoretically the main topic of this. <laughs>
1: right, right, right. Let us now finally begin to talk about what we plan to talk about. Uh, and what we're talking about today is the frame narrative. So uh, we've been kind of dancing around this for a while. We've mentioned it several times. Um, but we wanted to come back and talk a little bit in more with more focus on – the question of the frame story, and by the frame story, of course, we mean the Bilbo and Frodo, you know, the the what we can call the Elijah Wood element uh, of of the Hobbit film. Um, those times which are going to be held in. The future, though, again, chronologically, it's already interesting, right? Because it's it has to take place, um, based on what we've seen in the trailer, it has to take place during the time before the long-expected party. So it's it's chronologically prior to the entire Lord of the Rings story, but far after the Hobbit story. Um so that means they're they they seem to be adopting a frame because you know it's theoretically possible that it could be otherwise. It's theoretically possible that it could be like in Rivendell uh or something like that, you know, after the Lord of the Rings story, but it's clearly not. It's clearly while the two of them, Bilbo and Frodo, are living together in Bag End prior to the beginning of the Lord of the Ring. I mean, am I right about that? I mean, that seems obvious from the trailer, right? Yes, I would agree yeah. with that. Yeah. So okay, so what that means then is we have a story where that's that's the that's that is the baseline that's the chronological baseline of the story um, so there are several factors that are therefore involved um and 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 it raises therefore many questions what about the ring how do they do the ring of course in this time uh in the book stories um bilbo doesn't really have any suspicion that the ring is anything malicious or anything more serious than a magical invisibility ring which is very useful and which he's very fond of um and neither does anybody else like Gandalf um how are they going to handle that? And this, of course, is a much bigger question, which we need to have an entire episode on, uh, and we will before too long, and that is how are they going to handle the ring and the wearing of the ring in the movie? Um But anyway, so leaving that aside for now, because that's a show unto itself, um, we have we have this this framework in Bilbo telling Frodo the story of the Hobbit. Um so what is going to be Bilbo's frame of mind towards it? The one clear hint that we get towards this is that Ian Homeline from the trailer, right? When Ian, when, you know, when Bilbo, when old Bilbo is like, you know, I have I didn't tell you the, I forget the exact words. And he's like, you know, you haven't heard the whole story or something like that, where he's like indicating to him that there's, you know, that there's more that he's going to, that he's going to, that, that he needs to tell him. And this, to me, raises the really fascinating question of how is – are we going to get any play on – the unreliability of Bilbo as a narrator because of course a big part of Tolkien's story necessitated by his own (laughs) revisions of his story is the fact that when Bilbo originally told the story to Frodo and to Gandalf and to the dwarves, he lied about it that he never told the dwarves um, until the council of Elrond. He never told the dwarves, the real story about how he got the ring um, and how and, and what actually happened with Gollum um and that he and that he put the wrong story down in his book um in other words bilbo is an unreliable narrator he doesn't tell this whole, the true story he lies about it now the only part that he is said to lie about is chapter 5 that is the riddles in the dark chapter the 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 story of how he got the ring um, but are we going to get any element of that are we going to get any hint of the fact that bilbo is unreliable is there going to be tension here um, is that what the trailer is indicating when uh bilbo says that you know that he's going to tell you he's going to tell him the real story in the fellowship of the ring of course uh when bilbo uh when gandalf asks frodo in chapter 2 um if bilbo told him the story and frodo says yes of course and then gandalf says which story i wonder and um frodo then says oh if you mean like what he wrote in his book and what he told the dwarves no he told me the real story some time ago um so is that exactly what we're talking about here um yeah it's
0: anyway. a it's an interesting point i'm wondering I I have this suspicion that, that 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 the that line that you mentioned, where where Bobo says, you know, um, I I told you the truth, but I didn't tell you the whole story. Basically, yeah. I have yeah. a suspicion that's a reference to this, but it's hard to imagine them re- returning to it throughout the film because I feel like that would distract the um, the mm. the unread audience, the the people who are mostly fans of the film haven't. You know, uh, read through The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and then really, really dug into this idea that, that The Hobbit, as you read it, is actually the story as Bilbo told it before he corrected himself during the Council of Elrond. And so I wonder if, um, um, yeah, I wonder if they're just going to say that once and then just play the story and, and that it's really not going to actually play a role and there's not going to be hints at different versions of the story.
1: Yeah, and, and, cause see, I mean, Probably, I mean, the bigger question is, what kind of a role is the frame narrative going to take? Is it just an introductory gambit on their part? Um, you know, they, basically, I could see several different versions of this. I could see one version, the minimalist version, where you contextualize it as a story, right? In order to establish, you, you use it merely as a link. To us, to connect this story to the Lord of the Rings films. And you do that through Bilbo and Frodo in Bag End, um so that we, the, you know, the, the, the film viewers have reasons to make that connection and to contextualize it. So, so basically just as a way to communicate to the filmgoers, hey, here is a story from something that happened before the Lord of the Rings. And that's it and then you leave it behind and we never see Ian home again or Elijah Wood that would be one option another you know way of doing it there's like a middle ground way of doing it so you know not quite so minimally as that um but also not very fully and not very intrusively either that is you could do uh like the beginning and the end or even to sort of Go back to them at important break times, like at, at the end of the film or the beginning of the second film, or something like that, so you know maybe we have them uh, at the beginning of the first film, at the beginning of the second film, and the end of the second film, or something like that. Um, that would be a step up from the totally minimalist version, um but it would still be um reducing the emphasis on it so that really you're just watching the you know you, you you're permitted to just get lost completely in the hobbit story itself with only a, with only kind of top and tail reminders <laughs> of the fact that it's a story that you're hearing the third version the more thorough version would be for them to be playing with the frame story much more uh, much more intricately playing with things like the unreliable narrator um i uh, uh it, even you know coming back to it, you know like and i and i've made this comparison before, but like the Princess Bride, you know I mean the Princess Bride does this very very well, and I 'm not suggesting they would do it in the same way uh, that they do in the Princess Bride when we're reminded that this is a story being told and that there's a, that there is an external audience um to to the story itself mm-hmm. um. I could imagine that being done in some really interesting ways and of course like if I were doing it I would be totally tempted to do that because I I really love that kind of frame narrative and I think that it's a really cool kind of tribute to the way that Tolkien was very thoughtful about his own frame narratives and about the writers of his stories of course Tolkien the way that he would do this would, would not be as I think as a kind of oral narration like that of Bilbo telling Frodo a story instead the frame that he would make is, would be a found manuscript, right? Here is the here is the here is a a, a new manuscript that has lately been discovered, um, and we can trace its manuscript history back and show that this is a different <laughs> version of the story. Like that's totally how Tolkien would do it if he were doing a similar thing. Um, so uh, so anyway, you know, I, I I could totally see that, and you could play, you know, in that framework, you could play with the um. Uh, you could totally play with the unreliable narrator thing and even like different versions of a story. You could have, uh, you could have one version of the Gollum story told and then you know go back and then like have have Ian Holm called on it and go back and do another one i mean there there there, there are a bunch of different ways that you could play with it um and have it uh basically Yeah, that would come- be
0: fascinating doing doing retelling the same scene multiple times i'm sure they won't do that that'll, yeah, that'll I am too goofy but but that would be very that would be very entertaining
1: it I, would be it, it it could be real it's cuz it could be done in some ways to actually Create a certain kind of mystery, like to, I, it, you, obviously you'd have to be avoiding confusion, but uh, but anyway, I, I, it could be done really cool. But I, I, I don't think they're going to do that.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned the the found manuscript idea that that would be a really interesting way to take take on this, given the recent um, spate of found footage low budget films that people have been making. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah exactly i well, we found this recording of what really happened
1: to bilbo <laughs> right right yes yes wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you know it was in the great smiles archives all along um so uh yeah.
0: the people in the chat room brought up a really good point um all the white council sort of peripheral material how does that if the if what we're getting in the film is not going to be if what we're getting in the film is indeed bilbo recounting the story and recounting the true story to frodo if we're going to stick with the frame narrative mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> how uh, how are they going to work in all the stuff that's been that's happening sort of to- that that basically the parts of the story that bilbo's not involved in
1: it's a fantastic question, because of course that's exactly why that stuff is not there in the books. Yes. Because, uh, because Tolkien is consistent with that. You know, he's consistent with the frame of his narrative by and large. And, um, and now, you know, the thing that I would clarify, of course, the Hobbit is not narrated by Bilbo himself. The published Hobbit is, not, we, we know that the Hobbit was in origin Bilbo's, Bilbo's private diary. But it never is Bilbo's private diary. That is, even the first edition published version doesn't ever claim to be a, a first person account. True. We do, we do get this glimpse of it. We know that that's where it comes from. We see Bilbo writing his memoirs, which he calls there and back again, a hobbit's holiday in the last chapter of the book. Uh, that is, uh, of, of the published hobbit. But, um, but it's never that. The narrator of the hobbit is, Um, The the narrator who actually addresses the reader is a modern figure. This is why you get all these things which sometimes bother people, the things that look like anachronisms in The Hobbit, the references to express trains and Christmas trees and uh, things like that, Um, because they're they're not actually anachronisms. They are the modern narrator addressing his modern audience and making comparisons to modern things. in order to to illustrate the story that he's telling. Mm-hmm. Um, so even in the first edition, the idea is the, – the, the seeds of the idea are already there. That Bilbo comes home from his journey. He writes his memoirs down. But those memoirs that he writes get retold and reset by later people so that the text that actually is come before us – is um is not bilbo's diary but a modern rendition uh, you know a, a right. modern redaction of bilbo's diaries yeah. and tolkien himself casts himself as narrator in the dwarf runes on the inside cover uh, of the original publication of the hobbit um he mentions himself by name as being the editor of the manuscript, of being the, you know, the, the, the guy who has done the redactions, um, from Bilbo's journal. So we can already see that he doesn't invent an extensive, he doesn't, he doesn't immediately invent the extensive Middle Earth textual history that we get in the, in the prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring that is, you know, like how the, how this was stuff was in Bilbo's Diary was incorporated into the rest book, into the, the red book of Westmarch, which was then recopied and brought down to Gondor and recopied again and all these other things. I, you know, he, he hadn't invented any of that, of course, in 1937, but we can already see, uh, the beginnings of that. Right. Uh, later on. So, but anyway, this is so, all, so it's all as much as to say there was not a mechanism. Um, and that's why the only time we get glimpses of what went on with the White Council people is when Gandalf's talking or when we get like that overheard, the, the Appendix A overheard conversation, which gets excerpted and put into the quest of Erebor between Gandalf and Frodo and Gimli. So where, where we're getting the, the wizard side of it. We get a glimpse of it in the essay on the rings of power in the third age published at the end of the Silmarillion. Um, you know, where we get things like Gandalf coming back to Elrond after his trip to Dal Guldur and saying the two of them by themselves, uh, yeah, I was right, it's Sauron. Um so so basically, yes, this is this is this is an interesting problem. Now of course one way to solve this problem as a frame narrative, um, would be to have Gandalf there, to bring Gandalf into it. Which uh,
0: <clears> he can have Gandalf have Gandalf sitting next to Bilbo and Frodo saying, "Yeah, and I'll fill in the gaps for you."
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> to 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 make that into a three way conversation, or to even you know, you could even do it to you know, um, it could be done. I guess the simplest way it could be done is um, you know, Bilbo saying to Frodo, um, "Yeah, like Gandalf later filled me in on like." All the other stuff that re- was really happening during all of this. Um, so I'll tell you the full story, not just like the bit that you read in my diary, um, which would contain his own personal account, presumably. Because yeah. um, we know that he wrote that. We see Bilbo writing his diary um, in the opening sequence – well, not the very opening sequence, but in the Concerning Hobbits sequence um, of uh, of The Lord of the Rings film.
0: But so, but doesn't this open up the possibility, uh, as Trish points out in the chat room, that Frodo would know too much? I mean, there's a lot of things that he learns at the very start of the Lord of the Rings story that are things that he that if he had been told the entire story of of what was happening while Bilbo was was on this adventure, including the White Council stuff and the Necromancers, actually Sauron, yada yada yada. Yeah. Um In some sense that sort of that that obviates the need for uh the 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 whole the whole frame story for the quest of of Erebor thing where where mm-hmm. you know in the in the book of unfinished tales and stuff where Gandalf goes back and says let me explain to you how this fits into the larger larger story if Gandalf's telling Frodo all of this um at the same time that Bilbo's recounting his story then Frodo already knows everything and right. he certainly Prior to doesn't Lord of the Re-
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, okay. It it would introduce a, poten- a, a potential continuity error or a potential continuity problem between the Hobbit film and the Lord of the Rings films. But, you know, I'm not sure how big of a continuity problem it creates. That is, I don't think there is any particular piece of information which Frodo is supposed to not have, which, if he gets in The Hobbit, creates a continuity problem. I mean, for instance, when Gandalf mentions Mordor and mentions Sauron, it seems clear even in the film that Frodo's heard of them you know i mean f- uh, that that it's not like he's never heard the name in his life before uh, or never heard of such a thing That's true. um so, that, I mean, that would be a continuity problem. I mean, if, if in The Lord of the Rings we had, like, let me tell you, once upon a time there was a dude named Sauron. If that happened in The Lord of the Rings films, then clearly we couldn't have anything like that in The Hobbit without creating a big problem. But instead, it seems to me that the only real continuity issue there, though I agree that there is one potentially, but it's just like the level of his cluelessness and his naivete. Like, basically, he would be slightly less naive, Um if he had already heard the whole story of uh, you know, uh the the whatever happens with Dol Guldur um and Sauron's return, that there sh- you know, then if it were totally continuous, what should be happening when Gandalf in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Rings says talks about Sauron of Mordor, then Frodo should be like you know like no the time has come has it like you know we 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 knew that he was building towards this you know and obviously he's not that savvy in the films but again does he actually say anything is there is 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 his ignorance of certain information necessary to the plot of the fellowship of the ring i don't recall anything um that would be a specific a that kind of a particular problem though again Attitude wise, it would be a little hard to see Frodo being quite as, uh, sort of fresh and clueless, uh, as he, as he seems to be. Though I guess, you know, at the same time, you could, you could combat that in a, in a sense just by the way you depict Frodo in the Hobbit frame. I mean, you know, he does not have to take this stuff terrifically seriously i guess if that makes any sense i mean basically if you show him having a kind of immature response to it and being like wow cool anyway i gotta go yeah like so that basically it doesn't really hit home to him until the fellowship of the ring film you know i could see that happening or working in some sense um but uh but yeah no it is you know it, it would uh it would though again, you know, remember at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, one of the initial frameworks of course is that Frodo already knows Gandalf quite well. So um again it certainly does it certainly does open the possibility that Gandalf is hanging out with him and that he could contribute to that conversation directly. So that would be one way. Bilbo could either say he'd heard it from Gandalf, or Gandalf could actually be present, um, and we could have like the three of them over tea. And see, and this is another way that you could use the frame narrative comparatively, unintrusively. That is, it could be used even as a transitional approach. Um, You know, when we're shifting from Bilbo's story of. The, the in fact, this would be a really cool thing if we did have the frame narrative, including you know Elijah Wood Ian Holm and Ian McKellen sitting around the bag end table, having tea or smoking out on the lawn together. Um, if we did have that, then it would enable not only transitions between segments that is Bilbo telling the story. About, you know, the trolls or telling the story about being captured by goblins in the Misty Mountains and then Gandalf and taking over and being like, well, you know, I was late for the troll thing because this is what I was doing, you know, and then we get we get, you know, Gandalf's story of of, you know, how he was meeting with. Uh, I, I don't know if he's going to run into Rivendell people or how they're going to handle that. But anyway, um, so so you could easily see, you know, Gandalf jumping in now to fill in his part of the story, and then going back to Bilbo. And the cool thing is that that could be done in such a way as to enable the kinds of shifts in tone that seem to be at least possible in the film. I don't. I'm not confident that they're going to do this. But remember, one of the questions all along was how are you going to combine. The, you know, the epic scope of, you know, a fitting uh, follow-up to the Lord of the Rings films with the lighthearted, whimsical tone of the Hobbit book. And of course, one way to do that would be to have Bilbo's narration parts be lighter in mood and Gandalf's be more serious. I mean, if you actually establish through the frame that there are different voices, that there are different tellers of those two stories, you actually could play on that tonally and have the representations be a little bit different. I get That may be more complicated than they would actually do, but I think it would be cool.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I don't know i I have a feeling that that could end up not working terribly well like i I feel like the effect on the film would be comedic could potentially be comedic,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: which uh, you know
1: I'd be cool with but yeah i it,
0: it, uh, <laughs> i'm just thinking i'm thinking uh I'm thinking of what my uh my uh uh here previously girlfriend now fiance <laughs> Teresa would say um, i was no nope.
1: Stumbling over the uh over the oh, over that. Congratulations!
0: Yes, thank you very much. Um, she is
1: officially a new thing now to you, so that is very exciting.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, it is very exciting. Although now we've just launched into the actual planning of the wedding, and and that's not exciting.
1: <laughs> yes, no, that's that's somewhat sober. Really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um but anyway i have a feeling she wouldn't be terribly impressed with with uh, dueling tone do du- scenes with dueling tones like here's a fun lighthearted scene and here's a really really horrific scary scene with gandalf and now we're back to the lighthearted scene and now a scary uh. scene
1: yeah no I mean certainly if it were done in 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 the really sort of clumsy way I just described it it would be it would just end up being awkward but see see how that could also lead to like different versions of of the or like different views of the same scene um like, anyway, I, I, I i this this this
0: recalls to me the the comment somebody made on an episode a long time ago where they basically said rather than splitting the films chronologically. Why don't they just make two different films that tell parallel storylines from start to finish?
1: Right, right, <laughs> right, exactly. But you, <laughs> right, and and I mean, clearly they're not going to actually do that. But yeah, so like my that's kind my, of a cool idea, though. My multiple narrator theory is that you essentially have those uh parallel stories being told at the same time, and when the important thing is the emphasis on story, that's the thing that I think you get from a frame narrative, which can either be uh used a lot and and brought back to a lot or it, or we as the audience can be allowed to forget about it but the it in question is the fact that it's a story that we're listening to the fact that it's we are not just you know we are not just kind of voyeurs in the film as we usually are i mean you know normally when we watch a film it's just like the fiction of the of the of the thing that we're watching you know, the, the, the assumed and unmentioned fiction is that somehow we're just being enabled to see this, that like we have some kind of magical window into what's going on in this story and no attention is ever drawn to the fact that somehow all of this is captured on film and we're sitting here seeing it. Now, I mean, that's perfectly acceptable as part of the sort of framework of assumptions that we bring to a film, but that's why I really enjoy uh, you know, films and plays and stories that actually draw attention to that. And Tolkien loved this. Tolkien, um, very rarely just wrote books where the, where, where he is asking the reader simply to make that kind of assumption about how you got the narrative that you are holding in your hands right now. Um, who wrote it down and how did they know all this stuff? Right. Um, you know, and so he, he loved coming up with answers to those questions and showing us how that, how that works. And, and I really like that kind of story. Like, uh, I, you know, I, this is one of the things, you know, one of my, one of my favorite books is Dracula by Bram Stoker. It's a fantastic novel. And it's one of the things that happens in that novel too, is that we see the actual narrative of the story being written as the story goes along. You know, the, the first, the, uh, the first person, first hand documents that are being recorded, people's diaries and stuff, and we see them being gathered Together and there's there's a part of the book when they're actually carrying around a wad of manuscript, which is the, which is going to be the book, eventually. Um, and uh, you know, Tolkien never does that quite to, to that extent. Actually, have like you know the book or the scroll of 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 the Lord of the Rings um, being carried around. But uh, but anyway, that, that so a kind of a film version of that is kind of cool. And you invoke that possibility whenever you have... This kind of a frame story. Um, you're drawing attention to the fact that it's a story being told and inviting the reader to be, to think about things like point of view and, um, you know, who's telling the story and how do they know all they know and who's the audience for the story and, and, and what's going on. So the, f- this is why, as I said way back at the beginning, as soon as I heard that Elijah Wood had been cast, I was ecstatic because I was assuming, and it turned out rightly, it seems, that what that meant was that we were going to do this kind of a frame narrative. We were going to get – our, our attention was going to be drawn to the status of the Hobbit story as a story within the Lord of the Rings world um, and that that story was going to have a teller, which was almost certainly going to be Bilbo. Um, right. So awesome. Awesome. Or or even – I mean I think the first thing I pictured when I heard about Elijah Wood was actually getting post-Lord of the Rings views of Frodo as editor essentially. Um uh, and him doing the collation of Bilbo's private diary on the one hand and accounts stuff from Gandalf on the other hand um, now having it be Bilbo and Frodo sitting around prior to the Lord of the Rings talking about it doubtless will work better on film than Frodo as late later in his life editor would work but um but anyway it's it, it it opens up lots of opportunities, so to me, the biggest question is how much are they going to seek, seek to take advantage of these kinds of opportunities? How big a deal is the frame going to be?
0: yeah, I, I agree with that uh, I think that is the big question. Are they just going to tee it up and hit it and then we're done, and maybe right. we'll see them again at the end of the film or the beginning right. of the next film basically the way the the same the way that the intro the role that the intro played in Fellowship of the Ring and some of the other Lord of the Rings films, or, or are we going to keep revisiting it? I mean, I can, I personally hope we revisit it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too, me too. I really, I really hope. You know, n- not that it would necessarily interrupt the frame, though. Again, uh, my on this but you know, as. As usual, it seems like almost every episode I, like, confess a private fantasy about what will happen in the film and then say it probably won't happen, but it would be awesome if it did. So here is here is my frame narrative equivalent of the burned dwarf reference that I'm holding out for, uh, uh, and that is um, for there to be a narrative interruption during the Gollum sequence that is at least a nod to the fact that Bilbo is tempted to tell the wrong version of the story. Um, and, uh, and so, so for there to be a frame interruption, to go back to Ian Holm and Elijah Wood, and I keep mentioning the actors' names, of course, to clarify young Bilbo and old Bilbo. Right. Um, but like, yeah, to shift back from Martin Freeman to, to, to Ian Holm in the middle of the Gollum sequence and then have like a correction, not necessarily redoing a scene, but, uh, but at least being reminded uh, or, or given some kind of a glimpse that there's some kind of – that Bilbo is being tempted. Um, and even maybe Frodo being kind of puzzled but passing it off or something. Um, anyway, that that would be – I would love to see that. I doubt it will happen. But I would love to see it. <laughs> Do you think that's likely? No, I don't think it's – I don't think it's impossible. But I don't think it's likely. Um but, uh, oh, yeah.
0: well,
1: I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, well, we should probably get towards our prediction here. Yep. Yep. I we probably cla- should today, but I do have to go pick up my son. So, uh, All right. so I still have a, I still have a, an, an, end cap commitment that drives me away from the microphone here. So, um, but anyway, let's talk about our, let's talk about our, our prediction. Our prediction is about, um, know in connection with the frame, narrative um you know we were thinking about the opening sequence of the film so how are they going to do the opening sequence so the four options that we had were uh first it will be a sort of voiceover flashback a like exposition of background material um in some sense kind of I mean, that's that's how the Fellowship of the Rings of course with Galadriel's thing at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, that's sort of a the classic illustration of this mode. Um, you know, whether they're talking about the history of the dwarves or like, you know, the, there are a bunch of things that could be done. We could get maybe a few brief glimpses of something that might or might not be the Battle of Azanul Bazaar. Whatever, <laughs> but we, get, we, we get, There would be an opportunity. There'd be an opportunity. Anyway, <clears throat> never mind. I will stop fantasizing and continue describing the options. So, option number option A is uh, some kind of voiceover exposition based um, uh, narration of past events.
0: Yeah. O- option B, basically Fellowship a la Galadriel voiceover and Fellowship
1: right. of the Ring. Right like that, but obviously something else. Option B is a flashback without voiceover. So basically, option B and C are both flashbacks without voiceover. Um, Option B is flashback type 1, namely an epic... Uh, action sequence. So, we, so, and actually the two towers was an illustration with this. Starting off the opening sequence of the two towers with Gandalf fighting the Balrog as they plummet, uh, down into the depths of, of Khazad Doom. That is, uh, an, that would count as an option B flashback. Epic battle sequence. Starting off with a little battle of Azanul Bazaar would count. Starting off with Smaug attacking, you know, a Smaug who is probably not fully seen on screen. Uh, but anyway, starting off with dwarves running in panic while the fire rages in the city of Dale, that would count as, as option B. Um, uh, option C is type, is, uh, is, is flashback type Two, which means that is like a non action sequence. So actually, the, the Return of the King, uh, starting with the flashback to Smeagol and Diagol, that would be an option C opening.
0: What do you think, um, what do you think that would look like for, for the Hobbit? I mean, it's easy to see what the first two might be. The first one might be, um, I don't know, uh Thorin Oak and Shield narrating the events of the Battle of Asanolbazar. Um the second one might be just um uh just a scene of smog attacking the lonely mountain without without anyone actually narrating what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um what would what do you think C might look like? Uh, C- Gandalf what- and Thorin meeting at the uh Green Dragon. Uh, Bree, yeah. Or not yeah. the Green Dragon
1: and Bree yep. at the Prancing yep. Pony that that would certainly be one option another option would be gandalf meeting bilbo like uh, uh, imitating the the opening of the hobbit book um having uh having bilbo smoking out on the lawn and uh, you know gandalf walking up the hill and saying good morning that would be another option um uh, having the opening scene take place, uh, you know, something I could imagine, the opening scene taking, though I'm thinking of it off the top of my head, um, in the home, in the halls of Thorin out in the Blue Mountains, right? Sort of seeing the dwarves, starting with dwarves in exile um, and then, and learning the story behind that later. I could imagine that. Um, uh, anything, basically any, but but it has to be. But it has to be sort of flashback. Now, this is the tricky thing, is that how are they going to integrate this with the frame narrative? Okay, I should finish the options. Option D is starting with the frame narrative. That is the opening sequence after the credits roll is Ian Holm and Elijah Wood and perhaps Ian McKellen also. Um, the, the frame the, – that it takes place in the chronological moment – of the frame narrative, namely, well post Hobbit, you know, decades post Hobbit action, but prior to the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, pre, post Hobbit, pre Long Expected Party. Um, if it starts in that time sequence with Gandalf and or um, with Gandalf and or a uh, 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 Bilbo and Frodo, um, that would be option D. Um, of course, another option for B. Could be uh, that is for the action sequence opening. Could be the like the the one that I still secretly pine for in my heart of hearts. The sort of James Bond esque Gandalf and Dol Guldur opening. Would love that. <laughs> love that. Uh, though not one that ends with a car chase. So in that way, unlike a James Bond opening. But uh but yes, yes. We'd love to see like. I don't know, you know,
0: if Radagast showed up with his uh bunny pulled uh sleigh <laughs> Right we could high speed bunny pulled sleigh race. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, He'd be chased down by uh ring raids.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> uh... Um, hopefully not. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could, I guess it would be no more absurd than like a hovercraft uh, chase or uh, a gondola chase or something like that, as has happened in other Bond films. But um, anyway, so yeah, um, uh, that would be another. Uh, I would st- I would still count that as an action sequence unless, uh, you know, we have, in fact, just Gandalf meeting like Gandalf meeting. Thrae in at Dol Guldur, I would count that as C. You know, again, if it's not either a chase scene or a fight scene, then it doesn't count as B. Um, but uh anyway. we're going to have
0: trouble differentiating these.
1: No, but see, the fortunate thing is that we can always just fall back on completely arbitrary declarations. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that anyway. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we will see. We, we will of course try to be, uh, very consistent and democratic. But then at yes. some point we will just... That's right. Say what it is and invite everybody to yell at us. Uh, but anyway, so, so yeah, so those are our four options. Uh, okay. Voice-over exposition the uh flashback battle the flashback epic action sequence the flashback non action sequence and the uh and the frame narrative with bilbo and frodo
0: yep okay so um, in that case uh what are you going to pick or shall i go first
1: what, uh, i i i described the options so you go All right, first right i'll go first
0: boy i'll tell you what i'm really torn between um, and and my choice here is going to be largely driven by what i hope they do not by what i think it's likely they'll do um or rather what i think makes more sense i'm really torn between um uh um the desire for them to really really consistently stick with the frame story which means not introducing things outside the frame story like i i think it would break the frame if we start off with a 5 minute narrated you know here's a bunch of stuff that happened in the past type thing where where it's kind of it's that's happening outside the frame i i'm sort of hoping on the there's part of me that hopes that if they show us glimpses of battle azanol bazaar it happens within the frame of the story mm-hmm. um so you know i'm not saying i don't want i definitely want a battle vazanol bazaar uh part in fact my secret hope is that they're going to film, like, a 45-minute Battle of Bazaar <laughs> sequence and just include it in the extra materials.
1: <laughs> we, we have a separate DVD just for the Battle of Azenobizar. That's right. Yeah, that's that's my hope. <laughs> All right. Yeah, hey, as long as we're hoping, why not? Or just make it a separate movie. <laughs> Yes, The Hobbit, part three, The Battle of Azunobis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the prequel to the prequel, there you go. That's right. Um so, uh, so anyway, I definitely want to see that, but I, I, I think it will be weird if we go from a, a narrated sequence or an unnarrated sequence that happens outside the frame, and then we go to Bilbo and Frodo, and then we go into the story that Bilbo's telling to Frodo, I think that could end up getting really disorienting and confusing and weird. Okay. I, I found it weird The way it was done, the Galadriel opening, I thought was kind of strange because it's like, who's telling me this story? But anyway, so on the other hand, I really do think that that would be a great way to start the movie off with a bang, starting with one of those battles. So I'm torn, but I'm going to go with D. I want to begin with the frame story. I want him to be consistent and use that frame story.
1: Yep. Well, I am sorry to say I agree with you. I'm going with D, too. Oh, well, Um, that's no fun. I know. But see, because basically I think – they're going to get if we were to start with a with a with a flashback the chronology gets really messed up i mean say we start with uh you know dale on fire and dwarves running around screaming with their hands up in the air like if <laughs> maybe if a female dwarf maybe a female dwarf shown you know i i don't know but anyway uh if 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 we were to start with that then what then we jump forward 60 years and then jump back to a time that's Later yes. than that, at an, and then there's an, at an indefinite amount of time different from the opening sequence, it, it would get really complicated pretty fast, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think that if we're gonna do the frame anyway, um, one set of chronology jumping, um, from frame to story and back to frame to story, that's, that's enough, I think. Uh, and, and anything more than that is gonna muddy the waters. So for that reason, I, th- my guess would be the opening thing we would get, we will open the film in ba- at, at bag end, and we'll get we'll get Bilbo and Frodo and maybe Gandalf. Um, so that yes, that is also my prediction for that reason too. But we'll see. Though again, I am not without hope that we will get uh, that we will get like Gandalf sneaking through the halls of Dol Guldur with like some awesome like Mission Impossible music in the background. Like I still do kind of hold out uh, fantasies of that, but. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. I, 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 I don't have enough hope that that's going to happen actually to predict it.
0: Um. All right. All right. Well, it's kind of. It's. It's. In a way, it's comforting when we pick the same one because it makes it likely that we're probably right. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe <laughs> it doesn't. Actually act maybe it actually doesn't improve our chances of being right at all. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I guess we'll, uh, I guess, uh, we'll be interesting to see what our, um what our, what our cohorts think and, uh, and what our, what the listeners think. Definitely encourage people to, um, once this episode's released, head over to the Mythgard page, go in the exclusive section to the Reels in the Dark part, and, um, after you listen to this episode, give us your comments and let us know how you think that uh, the unexpected journey will begin. And uh, if you haven't had a chance, I, I there there seem to be fewer than usual comments on episode six and seven, which I suspect may be due to the fact that some for some reason people can't seem to find them on iTunes. That's really weird. I'll have to look into
1: that again. because yeah, um, they're there when I downloaded them. I mean, my, yeah, that, me too. My yeah. iTunes shows them up, so I, I'm not quite sure what's happening there.
0: Maybe what I'll do is uh, uh, edit the RSS. Feed file, make like one trivial change so that they so it refreshes so it. it refreshes,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. We'll see, we'll see. Because yeah, I'm not sure about that. Also, I mean, it was released. Within like a day of episode eight, so it may well just yes, be also true. that people are commenting more on the more recent one. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. And, but I and definitely I,
0: hope- I encourage people to go ahead and, and comment on things when you when you've listened to them. If you haven't commented on episode six through eight, go for it. We will we will definitely address your feedback on upcoming episodes as well as um uh not to mention this one as well. We want to we really want to hear what you think about the split, the White Council storyline, the ring raids, and now on our uh, on our handling of the the uh, frame narrative and on the how the film will begin so
1: that's right um, and and hopefully as we now move into summertime uh, i hope we'll get the chance to um to include a clearer mechanism for fan voting on options as well yes
0: Yes, me too. I, I'm, I'm really excited about doing something like that, adding a, uh, some kind of poll or something.
1: Yes, yes. So,
0: we will work on that, we promise. Um and in the meantime, yeah, go comment on the Mythgard page, uh, comment on the, on the Tolkien Professor or, or Mythguard Facebook pages if you would like, um uh, send messages to us on Twitter, uh, at Tolkien Prof and at Dave Kale. Use the, uh, pound riddles in the dark hashtag. Um, and we're really looking forward to hearing what people think. Yep, that's right. All right, Corey, why don't you take us away since the last few weeks you haven't been able to because you had to run that's off true. to teach lecture. That's true.
1: Yes, the last few weeks I featured, like, my disappearing footsteps as I sprint across campus to teach class. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for listening. And God